Well, after the uh, presidential election a few weeks ago, I, I began reading in the news, some of you probably saw some of this, a lot more stories about the, the U.S. Secret Service. Funny how that worked. And on Thanksgiving Day, uh, NBC News ran a story on the cost of protecting a president-elect. So let me read this to you here. As, as the soon-to-be first family sat down in Florida for their Thanksgiving feast, they were watched over by the core part of their new extended family. Get this, a contingent of at least 150 Secret Service personnel. And when Donald Trump gets sworn in as president on January 20th, that contingent will balloon to more than 920 Secret Service agents and support personnel in Washington and his hometown, New York. Right now, the cost to taxpayers is more than $2 million a day. Okay, and according to the Secret Service website, this, this is pretty standard, actually. Okay? This is what they describe about this $2 million a day. What is it accomplishing? The protection of an individual is comprehensive. I would hope so. And goes well beyond surrounding the individual with well-armed agents. As part of the mission of preventing an incident before it occurs, the agency relies on meticulous advance work and threat assessments developed by its intelligence division to identify potential risk to protectees. The protective environment is enhanced by specialized resources within the Secret Service, including, check this out, the airspace security branch, the counter sniper team, the emergency response team, the counter surveillance unit, the counter assault team, the hazardous agent mitigation and medical emergency response team, and the magnetometer operations unit. <laughs> Other specialized resources are like, well, what's left? Also serve to provide protection from threats including chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear materials and explosive devices. Can you imagine living with that sort of protection? I mean, just imagine that. No expense spared, obviously every law enforcement resource at your disposal. 920 highly trained, well-armed people whose sole job is to keep you safe. Talk about personal security. All you have to do, obviously, is find a way to get yourself elected as president, and you are literally set for life. Literally. Well, friend, I want to tell you something. If, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, then you are living right now with a safety and security and a guarantee of personal deliverance that makes the Secret Service pale in comparison. Okay? You sense where I'm going here? <laughs> All right? It's not a human organization. It's a divine person. And his name is the Lord of hosts. All right? Before him, mountains tremble. When he speaks a word, the earth quakes. He's, he's the living God. He's, he's enthroned in an unapproachable light. He's the eternal God. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and he is a God who saves. It's a God who saves. Never once, church, never once has he failed to save and deliver those who belong to him. Never once. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. That makes sense. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Listen, that kind of protection isn't the reward of getting elected for president, okay? That kind of protection is the reward of obedient faith. You want that kind of protection, what's the reward of obedient faith, of a conscious, deliberate choice? to turn away from trusting men and to trusting God. And that requires, friend, that you don't call upon your inner reserves or your good looks. I'm not gonna stare at any of you for too long right now. (laughs) Or, Or your resume or your bank account. It means you call upon the Lord and are saved. Call upon the Lord, okay? That's the divinely intended effect of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 tells you and me something about God that we could respond accordingly, okay? In a sentence, this is it, all right? Divine deliverance, divine deliverance is the sure reward of faithful obedience. That's the point. Divine deliverance is the sure reward of faithful obedience or obedient faith. In other words, the safety and security that you need the most does not come from man. It comes from God. And it's a divine deliverance that's not automatic. It's not universal. In other words, it cannot be presumed upon. It is the reward of something. Obedient faith. When obedient faith is present, divine deliverance is present, okay? Not not occasionally or, or periodically or eventually, but persistently and presently and eternally. It's a sure reward. A guaranteed outcome. Divine deliverance is the sure reward of obedient faith. That's what I want to convince you of this morning. And I think few texts are better than Daniel 6 and all its Sunday school flannel graph glory, for those of you who grew up in the church, to convince us of that fact, okay? So I'm going to make four points from this text. I will not spend the same amount of time on all of them. But the goal is to help us see that divine deliverance is the sure reward of obedient faith. All right, so here we go. Point number one, life in exile is a test of spiritual loyalty. Life in exile is a test of spiritual loyalty. So so this chapter picks up shortly after King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. He takes out Belshazzar of the Babylonian Empire. And it's important that you know that at this point, believe it or not, Daniel's a really old man. Okay, no offense to those of you who are thinking, Matthew, where are you going with this? He's, he's probably in his 80s. Probably in his 80s. And Daniel has spent nearly 70 years serving the king of Babylon, kings of Babylon, and now the first king of the, the new Medo-Persian empire that took over the Babylonians, okay? 70 years. Just imagine that. Apparently, that meant Daniel could do more than interpret dreams. Okay, apparently... Daniel excelled in wisdom and administration, so much so that a pagan king, pagan kings, couldn't help but notice, and they just kept handing the man promotions. You know, so so what did Daniel do? Oh, sorry, king. I'm a Christian, and I only use my gifts for the good of the Lord and his church. So thanks, but no thanks. No? No? No, he used his God-given gifts to be a blessing so that the king, look at verse 2, might suffer no loss. He faithfully obeyed the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Okay, if you're a Christian, you're living in exile. 
This world is not your home. Heaven is your home. And you are waiting for King Jesus to get you home. And until that day, here's what we have to remember. God is glorified big time, church. When we use in exile our God-given gifts to serve the people around us, whether they are Christians or not. Okay, so there's, there's dignity in your works of, of administration, of finance, of construction, of, of programming, of medicine, of cleaning, of stocking shelves, even when you're in exile. Daniel doesn't use the fact that he's in a foreign land with a pagan king and false gods to coat check his God-given gifts. And nor should you. And the other thing we do well to notice at the outset of chapter 6 is that the path of spirit-empowered obedience for Daniel, the path of using his God-given gifts, was a path of tremendous difficulty and suffering. Oh, Matthew, what happened to building me up? What, I, I'm just speaking the truth. <laughs> well, look, look at verse 3. Why, why did Daniel keep getting promoted? Because an excellent spirit was in him. Where did that come from? Chapter two, God, God gave it to him. So, so what happened when Daniel faithfully exercises his God-given gifts? Well, here's what happens, okay? His friends get jealous, friends, coworkers, get jealous, and he gets thrown in a den of lions. What happens when you exercise your God-given gifts? Friends get jealous, welcome to the lions, okay? Why, why is it then, friends? Because he obviously was exercising God-given gifts. Why is it then that when life gets hard for us, when suffering heats up, that we immediately start doubting if we are doing what God has called us and gifted us to do? Why do we do that? For a Christian, the path of obedience is always a path of suffering. Not occasionally. Always. Why? Well, because we follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior, do we not? Who told us in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving, sounds a lot like Daniel 6, and being deceived. So don't assume, don't assume that just because you're experiencing hardship as you're trying to honor God in your job or your marriage or your family, that that's God's way of telling you to run to another pasture. To the contrary, more often than not, suffering on the path of obedience to God means you are doing exactly what His Spirit has empowered you to do, and your job is to endure and not stop. Now, some, some of the most difficult moments, here's where I get to this test of loyalty, of suffering that we experience on the path of obeying God, come when we encounter a conflict between the law of God and the law of man. A conflict, collision, between the law of God and the law of man. That, that's the setup here. So his peers get jealous. They, they scheme to take Daniel out, literally, for good. And they con Darius into playing the key role. So it's important to recognize that few things matter more to kings than the loyalty of their subjects. And so they get this guy to enact a law, verse 7, whereby anyone that makes a petition or prays to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Okay, essentially they're saying, king, for 30 days, we think it'd be really cool if, if you were the officially sanctioned mediator of all the gods of the nations that you rule. Okay, so think about this. He's not necessarily claiming to be the only god in a monotheistic sense, right? Well, why do I say that? Well, because the, the Medo-Persian kings were polytheist, worshiped all kinds of gods. You can't count them all. But, but Darius is claiming a priestly role, an intercessory role, whereby he becomes the mediator between man 
and God. And he's testing the loyalty of his subjects by saying, listen, there will be no going around me to appeal directly to gods. You will go through me. Why? I'm in charge. I'm in charge. And for 30 days, you better not do otherwise. And the law can't be revoked because doing that would show weakness. And Medo-Persian kings are never weak. Never weak. So, so what is this, this malicious jealousy from his peers and, and arguably ignorant folly from his king create for Daniel? What creates a test of spiritual loyalty? Why, why do I say that? Well, because to obey the law of the king would be to disobey the law of God. Why? Because in 1 Kings 8, when King Solomon is dedicating the the first temple of God in Jerusalem, he gives instructions to the Israelites on what they are to do if they ever were to find themselves in a land of exile. And here's what he says, okay? Follow along. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you, toward their land. Notice that. Pray to you and toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, Solomon says. Then hear, hear, Lord, hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. It's the law of God. Pray to God, pray toward the city of God, and pray for mercy from God. If he chooses to obey the decree of Darius, he is choosing to disobey God. That's what's up. And it draws a battle line. Now, if you're like me, maybe you've heard or sat in on sermons where the pastor has asked a question like this as a test of whether or not you will obey the Lord. You know, usually something like this. If if the government makes it illegal to be a Christian or to share your faith, are you willing to die for the sake of Christ? You know, and and honestly, I've sat where you're sitting and heard that and thought, well, the answer is yes, but that's never going to happen to me. I mean, you know, you just think like that, arrogant young guy. So I would argue that that's actually a really good question, though, because it's in the Bible. (laughs) It's a biblical question. Mark 8 Jesus couldn't be more clear, friends. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Take up his cross. What what are crosses good for? They're not not back rubs. Okay? Death. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, translation, die, and follow me. Now, Now, if you're a Christian in North Korea or Iraq or Afghanistan, you know that Jesus isn't just speaking metaphorically when he says that. Why? Well, well, for example, in North Korea, owning a Bible is punishable by death. Right now, if if you're holding a Bible, you walk out of here in North Korea, serious. They estimate that 25% of all the Christians in that entire country currently live in prison camps. So why would anyone go to that extreme for the sake of loyalty to Christ? Well, 
it's because of the eternal destiny of your soul depends on it. Mark 8, whoever would save his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to die. To die. But for most Americans, and I think probably most of us, that call to death, at least not yet, isn't physical. But that doesn't mean there's not a death we have to die. It's just not physical yet for the sake of following Christ. Okay, so, so remember this. The, what's the fundamental conflict in Daniel 6? What's the test of spiritual loyalty here? As an exile, is Daniel going to obey the law of man or the law of God? Is he gonna do what man wants or what God wants? Is he going to fear man or fear God? That should sound familiar because I would argue we face that choice every day. Every day, okay? And sometimes it's harder than others. So what am I talking about? What's well, the lunch table where the upperclassman tells a dirty joke and expects everyone to laugh. It's the parked car where access to your body is the assumed cost of continued relationship. It's the office culture that presumes you'll surrender 70 hours a week no matter the impact on your relationship with God or your family. Okay, it's the, it's the day after community group when your new neighbor yells across the driveway, hey, did you host some crazy party or something last night? What are you gonna say? And it's the grocery store aisle where, where your toddler's screaming <laughs> and every turning head just rises, increases the pressure to use whatever threats are necessary to get them just to shut up. Or it's the boardroom where promotion requires supporting a moral agenda that violates your conscience. Who are you gonna obey then? Think about it. Who are you going to obey then? The law of God or the law of man? Whether that law is spoken or unspoken. As long as we're living in exile, friends, this life is just going to be chock full, overflowing with test of your spiritual loyalty. May God help us. May God help us to say what the apostles said in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. I want to charge you. When you face that choice, you obey God. Not men. Life in exile is a test of spiritual loyalty. Point number two. The path of obedience is the path of deliverance. There's a connection here. Life in exile is full of these tests of spiritual loyalty. And the path of obedience is the path of deliverance. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What's he doing? Well, he's not making a public spectacle. Okay, he's not using a bad law as a chance to get on the evening news. He's simply continuing to do what he had no doubt done for 
decades, and that is to ask God to have mercy on his people in exile and to thank God for his steadfast love and faithfulness. He'd been doing that for decades, and, and, and I would argue we do well to learn from his example here. We do well to learn, okay? Three things we need to see about this obedience, Daniel's obedience on this path of deliverance. His obedience was courageous, was it not? I mean, he, he knew the document had been signed. He knew the decision to obey God could get him killed. He wasn't blind to the cause. Oh, so I didn't realize you could die. No, he knew that. And he still obeyed. Obedience on the path of deliverance is always courageous. Right? Second, his obedience was biblical. This is really important. Okay? He wasn't just maintaining a personal preference. He was doing what God had instructed him to do in his word. Right? His obedience was courageous. It was biblical. And then, then lastly, his obedience was consistent. It was consistent. I want you to see this here. When, when he knew the document had been signed, he didn't waver. He didn't hesitate. He, he didn't skip a beat. He continued, note, a lifelong habit of obedience. And Darius says as much in verse 17. Look at that. Even, even this pagan king gets this. May your God, Daniel, whom you what? Whom you serve continually. Is Darius serving God? No. But what can he not avoid recognizing? This guy serves God continually. So what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is that if you want to obey God when the stakes are high and everyone's watching, then you had better start now learning how to obey God when the stakes seem low and nobody's watching. Yes, I am talking to young people right now. Very direct way. And Daniel's enemies... What did they do? Well, they found him praying, just like they expected. And immediately they run to tell the king. You would call that tattletaling in my household. And they get him thrown in the lion's den. You know, D- Darius's heart seems, seems broken. I mean, no, no doubt he recognizes at this point, my goodness, I just got deceived into killing a guy that I have a great deal of affection for. And so in the morning, he goes in haste to the den and he cries out, look at this, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. By the way, that's just always what you said to a king. You know, you didn't start with like, no joke, he did, man. Like, no, I mean, you got thrown back in. You know, it's, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Notice this. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I've done, I've done no harm. Why, why does Daniel say God delivered him? Let's think about this. Scripture is very clear. Because I was found, what? Blameless before him. Don't move quickly past that. But I'll tell you, when I first read that this week, here's what I'm thinking. Daniel's got a hidden pride problem. Okay, I mean, come on, man. Did, if, if, you're, if we're gonna read 1 Kings 8, let's read the part where Solomon says, quote, there is no one who doesn't sin. I mean, you're, you're, you're a great guy in all, Daniel, but, but you're not perfect. So why on earth are you attributing your deliverance to your obedience? Isn't that the opposite of the gospel? Isn't the whole point of Christianity that good works don't matter a lick? It's all about faith in Christ. What in the world is going on, Daniel? Well, evidently, King David has the same problem in Psalm 18. (laughs) The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. What? According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. I was, verse 23, blameless before him, 
and I kept myself from guilt. Now I'm going to argue that what Daniel means when he says he's blameless before God is the same thing that King David means when he says that he too is blameless before God. And I think that Psalm 19 gives us a really important clue. Psalm 19.13, David says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What are presumptuous sins? Well, they're what Moses refers to in Numbers 15 as high-handed sins. Maybe you haven't heard that phrase. What's a high-handed sin, a presumptuous sin? What's a sin that's committed knowingly, intentionally, and despite God's clear commands to the contrary? Okay? A a presumptuous sin, high-handed sin, is a sin where you say, I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what that is. So what's the opposite? What's the opposite of a life of presumptuous sin? Sinless perfection? No, no, no. The opposite of a life of presumptuous sin, okay? A life of knowing, willful disobedience of God's commands is a life devoted, to use David's language, to keeping the ways of the Lord. Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now follow me here, okay? Follow me. Did the law of the Lord in the Old Testament contain provisions to deal with the presence of sin? Yes. Yes. Okay, of course it did. That's what the whole sacrificial system was was designed to accomplish, to, to purify God's people from their sins. The law didn't expect Israel to be sinless. Otherwise, no one could have been saved prior to the coming of Christ when the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was still in force. Okay, the law didn't expect people to be sinless had provisions to deal with sin. But the law promised, please hear this, the law promised that no one who persisted in willful violation of the word of God would ever be saved. Numbers 15. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Friends, the exact same thing is true today. Why? First John 3. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Okay? No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Why does John say that? Why, why can you not willfully persist in sin and call yourself a Christian? Well, because of Ephesians 1.4. He, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. That purpose, we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay? Paul isn't talking about your justification in that verse. The means by which we're we're forgiven of our sins, we're declared righteous, and receive the gift of relationship with God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about your sanctification. He's saying, listen, if you're part of the people of God, That means that God has set you apart, that you might live a holy life and a blameless life, a life devoted to keeping the word of God in the power of the Spirit. Okay? That's what it means to live under the new covenant. Your life in Christ through the power of the Spirit in you is now characterized by faithful obedience to the word of God. That is the gospel. 
It's what Christ came to accomplish in you. So when Daniel says, the lions haven't harmed me because I was found blameless before God, he does not mean that he was sinless. He means that God delivered him because he chose to walk the path of obedience instead of the path of disobedience. Okay? In the kingdom of God, the path of obedience is the path of deliverance. And the path of deliverance is the path of obedience. Why? Second Chronicles 16. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To what? Give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Not to others. So what, what does that mean? Well it, well, it means, brother or sister, that, that your willingness to persevere in the faith and remain on the path of faithful, not perfect, faithful obedience to God is critical. So critical that it's a matter of life and death. If you're not willing to obey God and don't choose to obey God, then don't expect him to deliver you. Don't expect him to save you. Psalm 145, 19. He fulfills the desires of who? Those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves who? All who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. God was faithful to rescue Daniel because he chose the path of obedience. Okay? He was willing to obey God no matter the cost. And friend, if you are a believer in Christ, God calls you right now to do the exact same thing. Exact same thing. It's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It means doing what he tells you to do in every area of life. No exceptions. No, no God, everything but, but this little little box where, where I go in at night and I just do what I want to do. You persist in that, you won't be saved. It's the word of, word of God. He came to make you holy. And if you're not faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully walking the path of obedience, don't call yourself a Christian. All right? Life in exile is filled with tests of spiritual loyalty. The path of obedience is the path of deliverance. Here's the third point. Third point. Obeying God is the fruit of trusting God. Okay? Think about this. What is it? Oh, my. This is the like most important question I ask all morning. What is it? that's going to enable us to fear God instead of fearing man and obey the law of God instead of obeying the law of man. What is it? When a word, it's faith. It's faith, okay? Look, look at verse 23. Look at it. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because his way was blameless. Hold on. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now wait a minute. In verse 22, Daniel quotes himself declaring the lions didn't harm me. Why? Because I was found blameless before God. But in verse 23, he says as a narrator that no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in God. Hi, Daniel, I'm not an English major, but that's a contradiction. What, what is it, okay? Did God deliver you because you obeyed him or because you trusted him? Well, church, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, it's both. Why is that not a contradiction? Why is it not a contradiction to say that God delivered Daniel because he obeyed him and God delivered Daniel because he trusted him? Why is that not a contradiction? Well, because obeying God is always the fruit of trusting God. 
and trusting God will always issue or result in obeying God. Right? It's, it's, like a, it's like a natural spring. If you've ever been up in the mountains this time of year and your beautiful fall colors, you're in Shenandoah and you're hiking along and you see a natural spring and it, as a natural spring produces water, so faith produces obedience. You, you can't have one without the other. Okay, well, when there's no more water, there's no more natural spring. Right? It's gone. It, if there is a natural spring, there's what? Water. You can't have faith without obedience. And if you see obedience, it's because there's faith. You can't separate them. Okay? Obeying God is the fruit of trusting God. Trusting God. Daniel was willing to make decisions that looked absolutely foolish apart from the existence of a faithful God who delights to save all who trust him. Okay? Obeying God is the fruit of trusting God. Point number four, lastly, those who choose to trust in the Lord are safe. They're safe, right? This life is full of tests for spiritual loyalty. The path of obedience is the path of deliverance. Those who are obeying God are trusting God, and those who trust in the Lord are safe. Okay? Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is the central question in this entire chapter. Oh, Daniel, it comes from a pagan king of all places, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Well, to us, it's like, yes, yes, it takes about 10 seconds to get to the next verse, end of story. <laughs> but, but we do well to, to recognize that, though the answer is yes, that was more than a 10-second wait for Daniel. Okay? He endured the terror of falling into a pit filled with bloodthirsty animals. And even after the angel of the Lord appeared, I mean, just, just imagine what that must have been like. We don't get details, but angel of the Lord appeared and closed their mouths. They didn't go away. <sighs> he had to look at them all night long. I mean, did, did the angel stand between Daniel and, and the lions? Did the lions just go to sleep? I know. Maybe the lions were so old and weak or full from eating the last person that they just were disinterested. That, that's right, because miracles don't happen. I'm a Bible scholar. I'm smart. I'm going to teach you in your school. No, why not? Because Daniel, as a wise author, takes very careful note that the next group of people that got thrown in were gone. They were real lions, people. That's the point. What we know is that while God didn't prevent Daniel from encountering some of the greatest terrors imaginable, even as an old man, he marvelously protected and preserved him in the midst of all of them. He didn't spare Daniel from some of the greatest terrors imaginable. Just imagine falling into that pit, expecting like, <laughs> I mean, terrifying. Did God spare him from that? No. But what did God do? He marvelously protected and preserved him. Why? Proverbs 29. Memorize this church. Teach it to your kids. Cling to it till your dying day. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Okay? The fear of man. In every boardroom, every parked car, 
every classroom, every family reunion, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord is safe. What his enemies perceived as his greatest weakness turned out to be Daniel's greatest strength. In verse 23, if you look at that, because he trusted in his God, doesn't tell us exactly what promises Daniel clung to in the hour of his great need. But I would argue that what Darius says in verse 26 points us in the right direction. Look at verse 26. Darius says, he's the living God, enduring forever. In other words, friend, he's not a a distant memory or, or a figment of some old dead white guy's religious imagination. Okay, he's alive, right? Right now in this, in this world, in this country, in our church, in your family, in your life, in your heart, he reigns. He reigns. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And while we're waiting for him to consummate his kingdom and make all things new, he's not waiting to save and deliver. Okay, we're waiting for him to make all these new, but he's not waiting to save and deliver. He's working signs and wonders in every corner of the universe, including the darkest corners of your heart and the hearts of those you love. He's a God who saves, a God who delivers, and if he can prosper and protect Daniel in his exile, then you bet he can prosper and protect you in your exile and whatever lion's den you are living in right now. You bet he can. How do we know that? Because Williams is on stage and is really passionate about it. Well, I hope that helps. Because I pray every week that I would teach you, church, not just what to think, but how to feel. Because if we're thinking rightly, we'll feel rightly. And if we feel rightly, we'll live rightly. Pray for that. So, but how do we know? How do we know? Not just because Matthew's excited. How do we know that the God who protected and prospered Daniel will unfailingly protect and prosper you? How do we know that? Well, because of another innocent man who, like Daniel, suffered on no account of his own fault. Only unlike Daniel, he died. God didn't spare him. They rolled a stone over the mouth of his tomb as well. Like Daniel's tomb, they sealed it that nothing might be changed concerning his fate. And for three days, those who loved him waited in anguish. And then the unimaginable occurred. It's the kind of, if you like to read, it's... It's the kind of unforeseen but infinitely wonderful ending that leaves you laughing and crying for joy. Acts 2. God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because he saw it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what guarantees that the God who delivered Daniel is certainly gonna deliver you. It guarantees that, okay? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though in the mystery of his providence, God may allow the world to kill your body, if you're in Christ, it cannot destroy your soul. It cannot. Through the power of his blood, God has silenced the condemning roar of sin. And he has shut the jaws of death that opened over your life. That's what Jesus has done for you. His resurrection guarantees your own. So, what in the world are you gonna do now 
between this day and that day, when your king brings you into situations where, like Daniel, you have no earthly hope, no human recourse, no backup option, or plan B, where you are completely dependent on the mercy of God. Well, here's what we do. We call upon the name of the Lord, and we refuse to stop until our dying breath, if necessary. Why? Because we know this. We know this. That divine deliverance, because of the resurrection, is the sure reward of obedient faith. Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you right now so much in a world and a country and a family and a church and a life and a universe that is filled with turmoil that those who trust in you are really safe. Really safe. Lord, I pray that you would grant us through the power of your spirit the kind of obedient faith that keeps us on the path of divine deliverance. Father, I thank you for the way this chapter points us not to running out of here and trying to go be like Daniel. We want to follow his example. But Jesus, ultimately, we, we thank you that, that you, the perfect one, didn't stay in that tomb that because you're alive and risen and reigning right now, we have hope. And our hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. Give us that hope. Keep us faithfully obedience and deliver us on the final day. In Jesus' name, amen.